Well, summer has now uh, ended, um, and so too has our time in the Psalms. And it's right back into the Gospel of Mark. And so, in light of all that's gone on in our nation and our world, the greatest thing that we can be doing now is spending time in the Word, because we've heard from the world and the media of the world all week, and now we need to hear from God. And so we're going to be back in the Gospel of Mark. If you're visiting with us, we're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And we're so glad that you're here. We'd love for you to join with us in this journey through this precious Gospel. It would be appropriate for us, as we find ourselves in Mark chapter 12, to spend just a moment refreshing our minds of where we are at. Rather than recapping the entire gospel, perhaps the most succinct and helpful thing to do is to say, thus far in our journey, we've observed Jesus' earthly ministry, where he has called people to put their faith in him, to turn away from their sin and believe the gospel. And we've seen him also give a preview of the coming kingdom as he has performed his miracles. And we've heard heard him repeatedly tell the 12 disciples that are with him, which he is intently preparing for his departure, that he is going to be handed over to the religious authorities, that he's going to be killed, and then he will rise again. But they haven't gotten it yet. Even though he's told them now a number of times, they still haven't learned the lesson. They're slow on the uptake. They're like you and me at times. And as we've made our way into chapter 12 which is where we are at present, as we've arrived there, we've entered the last few days. That's where we're at, the last few days of Jesus' life here on earth. And so we find ourselves where Christ is literally on his way to Calvary. And he's on the receiving end of hostile attacks by the religious leaders of the day. In fact, we'll pick up this morning right where we left off last time. And that is in the midst of a three-wave attack by the Sanhedrin, who you recall are the most elite group in Israel. They are made up of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And I want to show you, by way of diving back into this gospel, each of these attacks upon Jesus. First came the Pharisees. That's what we looked at last time we were together prior to summer. The Pharisees come in verse 13 through to verse 17 of Mark chapter 12, and they sought to catch out Jesus by hoping that he would utter such words where he discredits himself in the eyes of the Jews by supporting the paying of taxes to Rome or by refusing the paying of taxes to Rome. And then he's arrested by Rome as a rebel. That's what they were trying to do, catch him out in that first attack. The second attack, which we'll look at today in verses 18 through 27 is where the second group of the Sanhedrin come and attack Jesus. And then after that, which we'll look at, Lord willing, in coming days, it's the third wave of the Sanhedrin, the scribes, and they come in verses 28 to 34 to round off chapter 12. And so three waves of groups filled with immense antagonism toward Jesus, each come with hostility in their heart and opposition on their mind. And as we continue our journey through this gospel, 
walking alongside our Savior, we can continue to be encouraged. In fact, in times such as these, there's no better place to be than in church, with each other, living in tumultuous times, huddled around the Word of God. Walking alongside the Savior, the Lord Jesus in Christ. And so let's lay aside every encumbrance. Let's lay aside every burden, every worry, every weight, every concern and every sin that so easily entangles us. And let's fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what we need. After all, he is the perfecter. He is the author of our faith. And so with that context, let's dive right in back with our Savior, sitting at his feet. Let's read our passage together this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no children, and his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven children, all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, this is all the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Let's pray. Father, we say thank you that we are here together. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your immense love. We thank you for the privilege it is to be here in the word of God. We have been bombarded and are bombarded with the world and the media of the world. And now we want to hear from you. We so desperately need to hear from you. So Holy Spirit, would you be our truth teacher? Lord, would you guide us and help us Free us from every concern and worry and distraction. Would this be a holy hour? We say thank you for this privilege that is all ours as the people of God. We certainly do live in an ever-increasing climate that really is a post-postmodern culture. I like how Fred put that last week. Postmodernism is marked by a number of things. And one of those is the negation of the idea of absolute truth. Anytime talking to people who have swallowed postmodern thought hook, line and sinker, it certainly involves them saying without reservation something to the effect of my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. There is no absolute truth. And what I always like to say at that point to that kind of thing is, are you absolutely sure about that? 
as a nation and a people drift away from the tenets and pillars of truth revealed to us through the word of the one true and living God that's been the hallmark of this nation and many others, which has undergirded the very fabric of society. When that happens, there is this fog that emerges in the thinking of many, accompanied with an intolerance that begins to exist in the minds and hearts of many, all while spouting tolerance for all. And it's like this grand delusion that just goes out over the lands where a sort of illogical rationale of thinking occurs. And yet as Christians, as those born again, those born from above, born by the Spirit of God, as those who have been given the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, we've been given eyes to see and eyes to discern the times. All while the world around us continues down this postmodern process, where it will soon be, it's right on the cusp to be viewed as hate speech, to hold to the confession of our faith, to say without doubt, without equivocation, that Jesus is the only way to God, that we love all people, which simply must not be merely in word, but also in deed, where we love all people, but we also say that not all roads lead to God and peace with God. It may be the ways of the world to treat salvation as all-inclusive, but the confession of our faith, which is anchored in the word of the living God, is that salvation, according to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, is found in no one else. The one who himself said of himself in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, 14, verse 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to God except through me. You see, postmodern thought, which is the very climate of our day, may view it as hate speech and may view it as bigotry and may view it as division and dissension to look someone in the eye and say, you are wrong. But as we just read, our Lord Jesus Christ has no hesitation in looking someone in the eye. This all-compassionate Christ... And telling them, you're wrong. Make no mistake about it. We live in a postmodern world. But we are not of this world. We are in it, but we're not of it. And so foreign are we that both our love for all people of all races and all religions stands in utter contrast to the world, so too does our confession of faith that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And so as Christians, in times of ease and in times of tragedy, we must always extend compassion and biblical hospitality to all. And yet at the exact same time, we must never compromise at all. And what's the response when that's the case? What's the response when we as the people of God who follow Jesus Christ extend compassion to all regardless of race, regardless of religion, but who do not compromise at all? Well, what's the response? Well, I'm pleased you asked for it is the first of three headings that I have for you this morning as we break down our passage. 
The response that Jesus receives for his proclamation of the truth of the word of God and the holding fast to the truth of the word of God will be the same response that every follower of Jesus receives. And it is number one. I want you to see verse 18, a resentment. A resentment. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him. I need you to recall that Jesus is inside the temple here. This is where these attacks are taking place, inside the temple. The tone and tenor of these words, whether it's from the Pharisees or from the Sadducees or from the scribes, are hostile in nature. They are not coming inquisitively to Jesus. They are coming to indict Jesus because they are filled with antagonism toward Jesus. And the truth always stirs up antagonism. The truth always stirs up resentment. This is how it was back then and this is how it is today. Waves of hostility crashing against Christ here. Waves of hostility will always crash against those who follow Christ, who follow the way, the truth and the life. But who are these people that are coming to Jesus here? Who are the Sadducees? This is the only time in the entire Gospel of Mark that the Sadducees are mentioned. And the Sadducees were the aristocrats of Israel. They were the rich. They were the powerful. They really were the elite of the elite. They were known for being intolerant. They were known for being arrogant. They were very small in number, but their influence was quite large. Overall, really, their support and endorsements didn't come from the masses wholesale, but from the wealthy few. And so they were the aristocrats. And not only that, the Sadducees only held to the law of Moses being God's word. That is the first five books of the Old Testament. That's all they held to. Everything else was not inspired scripture. Whereas the Pharisees, they held to the law, the prophets, the Psalms, that is the entire Old Testament as being God's word. The Jewish historian Josephus described the Sadducees as, quote, more heartless than any other Jew, end quote. They obviously differed theologically from the Pharisees, but as I pointed last time, they had one object in mind still, to destroy Christ. They differed theologically in that, as we just read in verse 18, they denied the resurrection, resurrection from the dead, whether of believer or of Messiah. And according to them, the body and soul did not go into the afterlife, but was simply destroyed And they really were the first annihilationists. And they're greatly mistaken. The Jehovah's Witnesses hold to the same doctrine. That both body and soul is just annihilated. And they too are greatly mistaken. And so the Sadducees espoused this false religion with false teaching. And Jesus had no qualms in telling them so. And so, just like the Pharisees had come prior in hostility, so too after them now come the the Sadducees, filled with resentment and antagonism. So, number one, a resentment. 
Next, I want you to see what flows forth from such resentment. And it's heading number two, a ridiculousness. A ridiculousness in verses 19 through to 23. Here it's where we see what they actually say to Jesus. But before we look at that, I want to show you their motivation. I mean, it's it's not as though they simply want to debate theology over a meal here. They are coming with the express purpose of discrediting Jesus in the eyes of the people because they made a promise, the Sanhedrin and the religious elite made a promise very early on that they would do what? That they would destroy Jesus. They would kill Jesus. Premeditated here is what they're acting out. They are coming with the express purpose. The Pharisees, they just failed miserably. Earlier in verses 13 through 17. You see, their motivation, the Sadducees here, why they're bringing up the resurrection, why they're saying these things is because Jesus had spoken prior about the very idea of the resurrection from the dead. Mark chapter 8 verse 31, Mark chapter 9, uh, Mark chapter 9 verse 31, and then Mark chapter 10 verse 34. He's spoken out about the resurrection, so they come seeking to discredit the concept of the resurrection from the dead, aware that Jesus is teaching the resurrection from the dead. If you look at verses 19 through to 22, we have here the Sadducees simply setting the scene for their actual question that doesn't come until verse 23. And what they do is they begin with this kind of made-up story, this made-up scenario, ridiculous scenario, really. And it's what is known as a Leverite marriage. You see, verse 19, where... It says, if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no children, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, which says, let me read it for you. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that, here's the express purpose, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. If your husband died, leaving behind no children, and he had a brother who was single, you would have married the brother. This... Leverite marriage was in place to preserve family lines, to protect family assets in the forms of inheritance, it's under the same name and the like, and also to preserve the Jewish bloodlines. And it also prevented intermarriage between Jew and Gentile in the Old Testament times here. So the Sadducees present this ridiculous hypothetical situation of a woman marrying seven brothers because they all died one after the other leaving behind no children verse 20 there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died leaving no children the second one married her and died leaving behind no children and the third likewise and then all seven 
left with no children, and then she died. The reason they say all of this is because they understand, you need to understand this. The reason they're saying this is because they understand the very concept of the resurrection to mean that everything that occurs here on earth will occur in heaven. Okay? That's why they asked the question in verse 23. Look at it. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. So what they're doing is they take the impossibility and the absolute absurdity of a woman having something like seven husbands in heaven, who each died after one another and left no children, as a valid reason to reject the resurrection from the dead altogether. What they're trying to do here is show Jesus and any within earshot that because life on earth, according to them, is the same as life in heaven, then just as absurd as it is that a woman having seven husbands in heaven is, so too is the resurrection. But I think we've heard enough from the Sadducees. <laughs> we need to hear from Jesus now. We've seen a resentment. We've seen a ridiculousness. And now third, I want you to see a response. In verses 24 to 27. Instead of answering in some namby-pamby way, Jesus responds like he's done in times past with resolve. And by answering their question <laughs> with a counter question. And while it wasn't the most political response, it's the necessary response. And so often that's the case. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them in response, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Jesus turned it back on them. They were the priests, they were the religious elite, they were the spiritual guides, and they were... Jesus said, mistaken, led astray, wrong in the Greek. I want you to see something. There's grace here from Jesus. There's grace here toward the Sadducees. He doesn't lambast them like he will very soon do in just a matter of moments. The, Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew tells us. He didn't lambast them like he did the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew chapter 23. Instead, really, here there is a perceivable gentleness with Jesus. Because it wasn't all woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. But this was a gentle, somewhat gracious rebuke, all with the aim of exposing the very heart of the matter. And for the Sadducees, the heart of the matter was ignorance, a double ignorance, in fact. And as I prepared the message this week, I began to see implications for us today in our climate, in our present predicament. Because what I see here from Jesus in this exchange, 
is compassion and no compromise. And our world and our nation so desperately need to understand that both can coexist. A double ignorance. A double ignorance both of the scripture and the resurrection. Both of the scripture and the power of God that performs the resurrection. You see, if they knew the true meaning of the scripture, not simply the content of the scripture. Oh, they knew the content, right? They brought the content up to Jesus. But they did not know the true meaning of the scripture. Because if they had known the true meaning of the scripture, as one commentator put it, they would know the miracle power of God in the resurrection. So Jesus says that in verse 24 and then moves to show them the error of their ways. Notice The word for in verse 25, for when they rise from the dead. Whenever you see the word for at the start of the sentence like that, it is often what is called an explanatory conjunction. The Greek word gar. What I've just said, I will now explain. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Because the Sadducees denied the resurrection, they denied the afterlife. And because they denied the afterlife, they denied the existence of spirits and angels. And because they denied all of that, as I said before, they simply thought that what was on earth and all that there which was on earth would be in heaven. It would simply be the But this is more than just a denial of the resurrection. This is, as he points to them, a denial of the power of God. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. He's saying to them, you have failed to understand that the power of God will make things new. The power of God will change the earth to a glorified body. And. What on earth existed between a husband and wife, marriage, sexual relationship, procreation and family structure will simply no longer be around nor necessary in heaven because all relationship, all all fellowship will be focused solely upon and centered upon God and with those that we share the resurrection with. Other believers who will be like angels. I like how Jesus throws that in there, but are like angels in heaven, knowing that they denied the existence of angels. That's what Jesus presses in on first. You're doubly ignorant, first to the power of God. And what that does in the resurrection in verse 25. And then second, Jesus says, you are ignorant of the scripture. Look at verse 26. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
Jesus is saying, you have a failure to properly understand the true meaning of Scripture. Oh, you're aware of the content. The words there, have you not read? That really implies that they had indeed read it. But again, they just read the content. They hadn't grasped the understanding. And let me drop a little side note here by way of implication for us. The Word of God is a treasure trove of truth from God. It's inexhaustible. So inexhaustible that even when faithful seminary professors, I've known a few of them, retire from a lifetime of devoted study, they are literally burdened by how much they still do not know and will say to you, man, the more I learnt, the more I discovered how much I do not know. And so we must display a deep humility and place ourselves under the inspired word of God and realize that we too can be prone to strong, erroneous opinions about things like the sovereignty of God and salvation, about roles of men and women in the church or revelatory gifts of the Spirit. Because all we've ever known is simply the content of the Scripture, but not the true meaning of the Scripture. And as a church... Our statement of faith, we believe and are convinced, is from the true meaning of the Scripture. But we must realize that we must place ourselves under the Word of God. Not only to know the content, but to labor in the text to know the true meaning. And never draw strong opinions based on solely knowing the content. That is what Jesus is indicting them on. They knew what it said. They just didn't know what it means. And between those two destinations is literally an ocean of ignorance. And if you know anything about ignorance, it causes issues. Make no mistake about it. It was the double ignorance here, both of the of God of the, by the Sadducees that had them at odds with Christ. They were deceived. They were mistaken. Jesus looked them in the eyes and said they were wrong. They held, as I said earlier, only to the first five books of the Old Testament being from God. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus sets out to show them from those very books that they hold to that the resurrection is true. I like that too. Look at the middle of verse 26. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage that you hold to? Have you not read right there? And the passage that Jesus is referring them to there and quoting from is Exodus chapter 3 verse 6. Let me read that for you very quickly. Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 says this. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, some make the argument here that because of the words I am, not I was, they make the argument that because this is in the present tense, that's what Jesus is talking about. 
Because he's not saying I was, he's saying I am. Well, well, because I am their God, that means there is a resurrection. Well, that's a good line of thinking. But in the Hebrew, there are no tenses, nor is there a verb in this verse. And so it reads literally, I, God of your father. And then we supply the verb in our translation. And so if Jesus isn't making the argument from the present tense, I am, not I was, what's he doing pointing to Exodus 3.6 to prove the resurrection? Well, I'll tell you, he's pointing to the fact of the covenant relationship that he made with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how that covenant promise endures forever. It doesn't end at their death. It marches into eternity where they live on. God's covenant lives on and so they live on and that's what Jesus is showing them here. He is their God. Even though having died, they still live. They still exist because of the promises of, that God made with them. They still endure. And those promises are not limited on earth. That's what he's trying to point out to them. His promises and his people endure into eternity. That's why Jesus says that he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And we live on because of the resurrection. Which every believer shares in. And I want to show you the irony. There's a great irony playing out here. As we wrap up this narrative. You recall the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, John chapter 11. He was in the tomb dead for four days. Jesus comes along, many Jews come along, Martha and Mary are there. Martha walks up to Jesus and says, if you'd been here, my brother would still be alive. He wouldn't have died. What did Jesus say? Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She obviously wasn't a Sadducee. She believed in the resurrection. Well, what did Jesus say in response to that? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Then he said this. Do you believe this? So here, this is the irony. <laughs> here are the Sadducees arguing about the resurrection, standing in the resur- in front of the one who says, I am the resurrection. What's so important about the resurrection? Well, without the resurrection, there simply is no hope. Our Sinful flesh, our painful bodies, our sickness and sorrow will in the twinkling of an eye be turned into perfection and freedom of all pain and suffering and life's troubles. Listen to Philippians chapter 3 verse 21. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform 
the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has. That's our resurrection under glory. Listen now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 13 through 19. Let me read it for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 13 through 19. The Apostle Paul says, If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact... The dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. I want you to glance back at verse 26 for a moment. I want you to notice the word fact. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again. You see, we deal in facts. We believe facts. We facts. In fact, it's been well said that preaching, and I would add the entire Christian life, is the proclamation of certainties, not the suggestion of possibilities. In a world and a nation ever increasing that says perhaps and possibly, we say certainly. You see, it is a fact that Jesus is the only way to God. He's not a way, he's the way. It is a fact that the God of Scripture is the one true and living God and that every other God of every other religion is not the true God. It is a fact that is it a point that it is appointed a person wants to die and then comes the judgment. It is a fact that unless you have come to repentant faith in Jesus Christ and believe that he died for your sins upon the cross and rose again, it is a fact that if you do not do that, you will spend an eternity of eternities in hell, in torment and anguish. It is a fact that if you humble yourself and confess your sin and your need for the Savior, believing that He died for your sins upon that cross and that He rose again, it is a fact that you will spend an eternity in heaven in peace with God. It is a fact that you may know the content of the scripture without knowing the true meaning of the scripture. And it is a fact 
that that brings about ignorance and ignorance causes issues. And when ignorance and error and false teaching and rejection of the truth of the Word of God occurs, may we be as bold as our Savior who looked people in the eyes and said, you are greatly mistaken. You are wrong. Resurrection, and because of the reality of the resurrection, things will be very different in heaven from how they are here on earth. Friends may turn on us. Enemies may encircle us. Death may come upon us. Governments and enemies may persecute us. But our Savior, the one who is the resurrection and the life, shall raise us up to be with Him forever. We have heard from the world all week. And we have just heard from God. And so as you march into this week and the remainder of this year and the rest of your life, allow the Word of God to assault your mind and not the world. What a privilege it is to be the people of God gathered around the Word of God. Let's now gather in one another's homes and enjoy food and fun and fellowship. And if you are a visitor with, here, with us here this morning, please do come to one of our lunches. If you're a visitor here this morning, you are invited to my house for lunch. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and just say thank you for this, this passage. Thank you for your sovereignty in us picking up this passage at a time such as this. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth contained within it. Would you help us to settle our hearts and minds and help us to look to the precious Savior all the more? We thank you that he is the resurrection and the life. And we thank you that because of that, even though friends may turn on us and enemies may encircle us and death may come upon us and we may be persecuted for our confession of faith, because of our precious Savior who is the resurrection, he shall raise us up to be with him and our saints, our fellow brothers and sisters forever. So we say thank you in Christ's name. Amen.